Good morning. This is Greg Roman on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk Radio with the Middle East Forum Century Podcast and also radio broadcast here at 10 AM, a little bit past the hour on Wednesday, April 3rd, 2019. We have a very special edition today focusing on Israel's elections. Only six days from now, Israel will go to vote for the 19th Knesset. And what we will see, it's actually the 21st Knesset. The 19th was about eight years ago. But in the 21st Knesset, we will see ourselves having a potential new prime minister in Israel. We may see a return for Benjamin Netanyahu, the current prime minister, with his fifth or sixth time having the people go to the ballot box to vote on his potential ascendancy to the premiership. And more importantly, for the purposes of this program, we will see a potential new era in U.S.-Israel relations. And that will be the topic of the program today, an American primer to Israel's elections. We'll be discussing the parties, the individuals, the politics. What are the issues that Israeli voters are thinking about? And here in the United States, how should we be looking some six to 7,000 miles afar of what's going on with the Israeli elections? Now, there's three or four reasons why I think our listeners should care about what's going on over there. The first, because the way that the Israelis decide who will be their future leadership is very, very important for our listeners to know what will be the direction of the U.S.-Israel alliance. Because usually what we see here is there is an American president that has the upper hand in the U.S.-Israel relationship. The Americans decide that it's time for a peace process. The U.S. Congress legislates security assistance to Israel. We see that the American president can sometimes put handcuffs on an Israeli premier. He can sometimes allow the individual to go free. If we just look back at the history of the American-Israel relationship, going all the way back to 1948, it was the American president, Harry S. Truman, that was the first world leader to recognize David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel's Declaration of Independence, quickly followed by the Soviets and then other countries. It's also American presidents, for instance, Dwight D. Eisenhower, who have restricted the maneuverability of Israel's armed forces. If we go back to the 1956 Sinai campaign, when Eisenhower got on the phone with the Israeli prime minister at the time and demanded that they stopped their incursion into the Sinai against the Egyptian army when they were in alliance with the Brits and the French. American presidents have their peace initiatives, whether it's Nixon, Carter, Reagan, Clinton, Bush, or Obama, who have all had their own signature peace initiatives. Two, the peace treaties with Egypt and Jordan, which have succeeded, the rest with the Palestinians, which have failed. But we often, we often hear about what the American president's role is, but we often do not hear what is the role of the Israeli electorate in putting a position, a man into a position of power to tango with America. The second reason why you should care about what's going on over there is that there is a very strong voting bloc in this country that has a certain image of the way in which Israel should react and interact with the rest of the world. Issues which affect Israel, like the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, like the qualitative military edge of the Israeli military. That means their ability to fight and have a one-up on their 
neighbors and enemies in the region, in the Middle East, and other social, cultural, and economic ties between our country and Jerusalem very much rely not just on what legislatures do here on the state level, on the local level, and then on a federal level, but also what the Israeli public is asking for in terms of the way in which their premiers are interacting with the rest of the world. For instance, the Israeli foreign policy for the past 10 years under this prime minister right now, Benjamin Netanyahu, has been to create a circle around the rest of Israel's enemies. For instance, when we look at Iran, you see Israeli ties with Iran's neighbors, like Uzbekistan, Azerbaijan, and even to a certain extent, the Gulf Arab states, where in the past, some of these countries, specifically the Gulf Arab states, have been anathematic in their stance towards Israel. And even going back to 1979, from 48 to 79, we saw that Iran was an ally of Israel. This was largely dictated by Israeli security doctrine led out of the prime minister's office. And when it came to the U.S. stance vis-a-vis -vis these countries... When the relationship between the United States and Iran broke down with the advent of the Islamic Revolution in 1979, we also saw a deterioration in Israel-Iranian ties. Let's not forget that nefarious chant coming out of some of these countries like Yemen, Iran, and others, death to America, death to Israel. Often, the United States foreign policy ties in the region are in lockstep with that of the Israeli government. Sometimes, though, it's not. It really depends on what's coming out of Jerusalem and what the position of our foreign policy stance is in Washington, D.C. And the third reason why you, our listeners here in the United States, should care about what happens on April 9th in the Knesset elections is because it's largely reflective of the political trends that are going on in the world today. We see in Eastern Europe, in Italy, in other places around Europe, we see in South America, in Central Asia, and even in Africa, there is a ride, rise in nationalist leaders. And when we think of America's democratic allies, those who choose their leaders by the ballot box, which largely reflective of what's happened in this country with the rise and the ascendancy of Donald J. Trump to the American presidency in the White House has also been reciprocated by other global democracies, by other national democracies. Jair Bolsonaro, a nationalist leader in Brazil, now leads that country. Matteo Salvini, the deputy prime minister of Italy, is very much in control of his country. The rise of Viktor Orban, the Singapore government, the Thai government, which just had elections. Albeit, there has also been a backlash, for instance, the ascendancy of a liberal prime minister in Slovakia. The way that the 8 million Israeli electorate will go to the ballot box might also be indicative of the trend in the tides and the rise in the fall of what may happen in this country in its election. There are global trends in how electorates are choosing their leaders and what their issues are. So, after the next break, we will get into who are the parties, who are the figures, who are the personalities, and exactly who will Israel choose in 2019. The Middle East Forum promotes American interests in the Middle East and protects Western values from Middle Eastern threats. 
The forum sees the region, with its profusion of dictatorships, radical ideologies, existential conflicts, and weapons of mass destruction, as a major source of problems for the United States. Accordingly, we urge bold measures to protect Americans and their allies. Read more at www.meforum.org or check us out on Twitter at MEForum. The Middle East Forum, protecting your interests. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Introducing the YMCA. What, you already know the Y? Or so you think. Sure, you know the Y for a swim, a workout, even a game of hoops. But did you know we're more than that? We're a cause. When you take your jump shot at the Y, someone else is getting job training. Take a cardio class while kids are in an after-school enrichment program. Practice your downward-facing dog as a teen practices her leadership skills. That's the Y. We work with people no matter their age, income, or background and give them the opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive, all with one simple goal in mind, to strengthen our community. And we've got so much more that does just that. So while you might think of the Y as that place for lifting weights, we're also about lifting entire communities. Introducing the Y. We're so much more than a place. We're a cause. Visit ymca.net slash more. Welcome back. This is Greg Roman on WWDB 860 AM, Philadelphia Talk Radio with the Middle East Forum Century Program. We are discussing Israel's 2019 Knesset or, or parliamentary elections due to take place next Tuesday, April 9th. I thought we would start off, before we get into who's running for office, what parties are running. And to look at the current mix of who is sitting in this Knesset, the current leadership of Israel's democratic process, we see that there is a right-wing bloc supported by 66 members of Knesset facing a left-centrist Arab party bloc, which consists of 54 members of Knesset. Now, in general, the Israeli Knesset comprises 120 seats. It's drawn by a proportional system, meaning that you don't vote for an individual, you vote for a party. And if a party is able to gather and garnish 3.25% of the total votes cast in an election, this is called in Hebrew the Echuz HaChasimah, or the electoral threshold, you then are able to garner a specific amount of seats, which is proportional to the amount of votes that you get. So for instance, in the last election, the Likud party, which is the party which is led by Benjamin Netanyahu, was able to get 25% of the vote. This translated to 30 seats, or 25% of 120 total available seats for that election. 
And if you do not pass the electoral threshold, let's say you get 3% and you don't get 3.25%, your votes are then distributed amongst other parties who are able to cross that threshold. So the magic number here is 3.25. That is what parties are striving to get at a bare minimum to sit in Israel's next Knesset. But before we understand why it's important to look at the polling for this or the parties which are involved, let's go over a current mix of what currently constitutes this Knesset according to blocks, not according to parties. So we have to first look at interests, then we'll look at the parties that represent those interests, then the individuals that lead those parties, and then what people are voting on. Israel is a diverse, very, very developed democracy. They have been having elections for the past 70 years, deciding who their leaders will be. There has never been a breakdown in the democratic process. There has never been a coup d'etat. It has been a pure first-past-the-poll system in terms of who has been elected to lead that country. So we have to look at Israel sort of on a three-part axis. One, left and right on security issues. Two, left and right on economic issues. And three, left and right on ethno-religious issues. That means that if you are right-wing, you might be voting for one party. But if you're right-wing and you're religious in the Jewish uh, state, you might be voting for another party. And even more so if you're right-wing and you're secular, you might have a third option. The same goes for the left. You can be left-wing and secular, left-wing and religiously observant in the Jewish context, or left-wing and communist and vote for your own specific party that represents your issues. That's usually the way that we see voters represented, at least in the American system. You define yourself according to if you're left, centrist, or right. You're a Democrat, an independent, or a Republican. But there's also in the American system, since we have a bicameral system of uh, of Democratic leadership, and we have a bipartisan system, in Israel, it's not just multipartisan. You have more than 40 parties which are running for Knesset. And that's only for a few million voters that are going to be deciding upon that. So in America where we had 113 million people turn out to the ballot box, only having basically two options, the Democrat or the Republican, bar a few races where independents were able to win. In Israel, a few million voters have over 40 options of who they will choose to put into power. Now, in the U.S., you find that parties constitute different blocks of either minority groups or interest groups. Like, for instance, if we look at the Republicans, you have evangelicals, you have conservatives, you have moral-based voters or value-based voters. You might have someone that represents a specific religious constituency, but they're not voting for a party which declares an affinity to that religion. The same goes for the left here. If you are in a union, if you find yourself living in the inner city, if you are a member of, of, of a youth group, or you find yourself part of an ethnic minority, you may vote Democrat. It really depends on what party best represents your issues. But in this country, there's only two or three options. In Israel, you have over 90 languages which are spoken as a first tongue because Israel itself is a country of immigrants. You have Arabs who are voting. You have Jews who are voting. You have Russians who are voting. You have Jews of ethnic descent coming from North Africa or the Middle East or Jews of an ethnic descent from Eastern Europe. You have those who are secular and those who are religiously observant. And in the current Knesset, 
you have 13 to 14 different parties which represent these different groups. For instance, the Russian electorate, especially those that came to Israel and emigrated in the 1980s and 1990s, first-generation Russian voters or Russian-speaking Israeli voters, they often vote en masse for the party which represents their interests. This is called Yisrael Beitenu, or Israel Our Home, led by Avigdor Lieberman, the former defense and foreign minister. Lieberman was actually the individual who sparked this election by pulling out of the government back in November after a rain of rockets slammed down on southern Israel, often on Russian-speaking ethnic minority communities. But the thing is that Parties in Israel are able to make a slant of different votes to try to get the most amount of votes from these different minority groups, especially if they consider themselves to be nationalist parties. Even though Lieberman represents a constituency that is equivalent to some 18 Knesset seats, he often only polls getting one third of those constituents, so six Knesset seats. And what we have right now is the current prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, making a trip to Russia to go visit Vladimir Putin five days before the election. Now, he may be doing that because there's a acute security crisis which is happening in Lebanon or in Syria where Russian forces are deployed right north of the Israeli border with those two countries. Or he may be doing what he did last week, which is trying to show his global leadership by meeting with the president of Russia something which is meant to be a political play back at home to gather Russian votes. The same thing one could argue he did last week by meeting with Donald Trump at the White House. Before a security crisis, rocket attacks, also on southern Israel, demanded that he return home and cut his trip early. But this is the thing. It's not just about Russian voters. You have Orthodox Jewish voters who are split between different parties that represent their interests. You have the settler movement, Jewish residents of Judea and Samaria or the West Bank. You have three separate parties which represent Arab interests. This means that you have a communist Arab party, an Islamist Arab party, and a nationalist Arab party, all who have representation in the Knesset. And then on the left wing of Israel's politics, you have a brand new party which has emerged, that of the Blue and White Party led by three former Israeli Defense Force Chiefs of Staff, a union leader, and a well-known broadcaster. There are literally hundreds of people running on these different lists for the Knesset, but only the Israeli voter will decide. The main race right now is between the Likud, the party led by Benjamin Netanyahu, and the Blue and White Party, led by Benny Gantz the former IDF chief of staff, immediately preceding Gadi Eisenkot, who was just the chief of staff who left office. Now, the attacks between the two have been vicious, they have been personal, and they're getting on the level of the absurd. We've seen the Likud party allege that Benny, Net uh, Benny Gantz did the following four or five things. The first thing is, is they dredged up a record from his time in the army back around 2000 and 2001 where they're blaming Gantz for the death of a Druze, which is an Israeli minority group soldier, outside of an Israeli holy site because he was unwilling to send his troops in. This is the allegation. The way they're translating it to this election, Benny Gantz doesn't know how to make security decisions. The second thing the Likud has said about Gantz is that 
he is an individual who is without an ideology. The Likud itself as a party is based on 70, 80, 90 years of what they call revisionist Zionism, or the form of Zionism which was created by Vladimir Jobotinsky, one of the ideological founders of the State of Israel. He represented a free market, capitalist, strong on security point of view when it came to Israel's governance and the way it dealt with its neighbors. They're saying that Gantz is devoid of ideology. The only thing he is running on, the Likud says, is trying to replace Netanyahu, not with a platform, not with an economic plan, not with a security plan. He's only running to replace the current prime minister. The third thing that the right is saying about Gantz is that he is very insecure with his ability to be secure. They have allegations of him being hacked by the Iranians. They have internal recordings of Gantz led discussions on party strategy, which have been leaked to the media day after day for the past few weeks. And they also have his statements that he made overseas at this APAC conference that we covered last week, where he was not offering a definitive security strategy for the future of the Jewish state. And the fourth thing that they're saying about Gantz is that it's not that he just is insecure, he may not be prepared to lead. When it comes to making tough decisions, like Israel's policy towards Syria, its policy towards Gaza, the way it will counteract and countermand a rising Iranian aggressive state. They point to Gantz's positions in the security cabinet, which is where Israel's political and security decisions are made, and his inability to make a recommendation in previous discussions in the years when he was in power as the chief of staff. Now, the accusations are no less vicious when it comes to the blue and white party against Prime Minister Netanyahu. Benjamin Netanyahu is facing four separate corruption investigations, and the blue and white party have been able to jump on that by being able to create a collective morass of the way in which they see the country going if Netanyahu is re-elected. Their party platform is not one which is based on a specific policy, but one which is based on ejecting this prime minister. They point to his alleged bribery, his alleged breach of trust charges, submarines, which are on the le- in allowing Egypt to purchase submarines, which are on the level and quality of security. The other thing that Blue and White was able to threat to Israeli security. The other thing that Blue one led by Gantz, three separate parties. One led by Gantz, the Israel Chosen or Israel Resilience Party. Two, the Yeshatid Party, led by an individual named Yair Lapid, the son of a former justice and interior minister who has already served in the Knesset for seven years. And three, Moshe Ya'alon, a former member of Netanyahu's Likud party, who was unceremoniously dismissed because of political considerations three years ago, which is now running against this premier. The issue is here is that they have been able to form a block, which is not a, a left block per se or a right block per se, considering the fact that they have both members of the right and the left on their parliamentary list. But they have been able to gather en masse this this, this willingness to do whatever it takes to eject the current prime minister. But here's where the electoral math gets incredibly complicated. Remember, we said a few minutes ago that it takes 3.25% of Israel's electorate to elect a party to sit and its members to sit in the Knesset. 
even if the blue and white party is able to get more votes for its list than Prime Minister Netanyahu and the Likud party, Benny Gantz may not be the future Prime Minister of Israel. Because it doesn't depend on how many votes you get, sort of like in the UK where it's a first-past-the-post system. If you get 11% and the next candidate on the list gets 10%, you're in Parliament. And your candidate goes home. And your opposing candidate goes home. But in this case, the individual who was able to become the prime minister, the head of the party which gets the most amount of votes, which is able to become prime minister, has to have the support of 61 members of Knesset. Meaning that if you don't get a majority, and there has never been a time in Israel's democratic elections or in its history where a party has gotten 50% of the vote to be able to constitute the government, you must rely on smart, smaller parties to form your coalition to back you being prime minister. So this means that we have to look at the totality of the Israeli vote rather than just focus on which party will get the most amount of votes. So I want to go to a, set, a website that I find particularly definitive and interesting and always reliable on polling the Israeli sense of who they will vote for. Remember we said before, the current coalition government in power right now is 66 seats out of 120 seats, constituting parties like the Likud, Another one, which is called Habayit Yehudi, the Jewish Home Party, which is a national religious party led by Naftali Bennett. Bennett has decided to run on his own in this next election. You have members of a socioeconomic focused party called Kulanu, led by a former finance minister, Moshe Kachlon. And altogether, they constitute 66 seats. If we were to look at Yisrael Beitenu, the Russian party that we had mentioned beforehand, which is no longer part of the coalition. So Netanyahu is polling right now at 29 seats, putting him in the lead amongst all the other parties running for Knesset. But he must be able to get 32 other seats or other parties which represent 32 other seats in the Knesset to be able to become the premier again. And even if Benny Gantz and the Blue and White Party, which he is leading, the main opposition party in this election posing a threat to Netanyahu's hold on power, gets more votes than the Likud, there is nothing that promises that Gantz will be able to form a government because his natural allies in the center and on the left only constitute 54 seats. So even if Netanyahu gets second place, he still may become prime minister. More on the issues in this election after these messages. The intellectual backbone of American Middle East studies has provided a rationable excuse for individuals trying to promote an anti-American agenda. We see that those individuals who are in Islamic studies and American Middle East studies programs at some of the most major American universities find themselves justifying the behavior of America's enemies overseas and promoting domestic threats that harm us here at home. If you want to go and learn more about Campus Watch, the Reader's Digest of American Middle East Studies, check us out on Campus Watch at www.campus-watch.org. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? 
What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff. But still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff. Create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back, WWDV 860 AM. This is Greg Roman with the Middle East Forum Century Program here on Philadelphia's best talk radio station. We've been covering Israel's elections that are due to take place on April 9th with the future of Israel's Knesset, its parliament, at stake, going over the parties which are running, the issues which people care about, and also the way in which Israel's electoral system works. But I thought that it might be good to also do a segment on what Israelis are thinking about when they go to the polling booth. Not just a referendum on who the current prime minister is, but who are the Israelis who are going to the ballot box. I turn us to an article that appeared today on the Times of Israel, that's timesofisrael.com, titled, Young Israelis Want Netanyahu, Older Ones Gantz. A pre-election poll by the Israel Democracy Institute finds that a quarter of Israelis fear election cheating. Arabs are much less likely to follow election news than Jews. The article begins. Incumbent Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is Israel's preferred candidate for premier over rival Benny Gantz, but not by much. Netanyahu is favored by 42.5% of Israelis, while blue and white leader Gantz is preferred by 40.5%. That's still within the margin of error of 3% that the poll found. But what's interesting here is that Netanyahu's great advantage lies amongst the young, the poll found. The older the age group polled, the more likely they preferred Gantz. Among Israelis 65 and older, Gantz was beating Netanyahu 53% to 35%. But among those 18 to 24, Netanyahu beats Gantz by a nearly 50-point margin of 65% to 17%. So why on these two strata do we have such a difference of opinion on who the Israeli people think should be the prime minister. I would give you the analysis that the older you are in Israel, the more tired you are of the security concerns, of sending your children to the army, of seeing rockets fall down on you. If you're 65 or 70 years old, I mean, let's, let's consider yourself as a 70-year-old Israeli. You have lived in this country since the start of the Zionist project in 1948. That means that if you were 18 in 1967, you were fighting a five-front war against the major regional armies of your time, and you won. But then if you were 26 years old in 1973, you would find yourself almost on the verge of defeat, of certain massacre by the Egyptian and Syrian armies before Israel was able to win the Yom Kippur War in October of 73. And then if you were 82, in 1982, you may have found yourself as a 35-year-old reservist in Lebanon 
fighting against the Palestinians. If you're 70 years old in Israel right now, you have seen a lot of warfare. The blood, sweat, and tears that your nation is built on is something that you want to turn aside from and to go looking towards a future which promises the potential era of the Egyptian peace treaty, of the Jordanian peace treaty. You see the specter of a dangerous Iran on the horizon, and you want a leader who will hesitate before they act. But if you're 18 to 24 in Israel, let's say you were born in 95, 96, your earliest memory of watching television is seeing buses blown up by Palestinian terrorists. You have lived through four different iterations of rockets being launched, either by Hezbollah in Lebanon in 2006 or by the Hamas in Gaza in 2008, 2012, 2014, and just as recent as last week when we saw a house demolished by a Hamas rocket in central Israel. The leader that you are most comfortable with, if you're an older Israeli, might be Gantz because you empathize with his career track. You may have had him as a commander in the army. You may have seen his ascendancy to the chief of staff. But if you're a younger Israeli, you want someone who speaks populist politics. You want someone who knows how to handle the enemy, which in this case is coming from both the north, the south, and potentially from the east, with the Iranian government always at the forefront of the Israeli citizen's mind. But if you're a younger Israeli, your affinity towards Prime Minister Netanyahu might be built in the fact that Israeli society as a whole has skewed right over the last 25 years since the Oslo peace process. And if you're older, you may have known what it was like to be part of those peace protests and those peace marches after the 82 Lebanon war or in the run-up to the election of Yitzhak Rabin, the prime minister who was assassinated by a arch-nationalist of a Jewish descent in 1995 because of his involvement in trying to bring and broker peace with the Palestinian neighbor. If you vote for Gantz and you're an elder Israeli, you're holding on to the strings of hope and peace of yesterday. If you're a younger Israeli, you find yourself thinking that the peace process is amorphous. It's not going anywhere. It's disingenuous coming from the other side. And you want a leader who can deal with the problems of today, not bring back the solutions of yesterday that didn't work. And this is largely the final issue that our organization, the Middle East Forum, has been trying to bring to the forefront, if not in any election, but just to the American and the Israeli consciousness, conscience when it comes to the way in which we see the peace process and we see Israel's relations with its Arab neighbors. Statements that have been made by different candidates for office in this election have not focused on the previous Israeli policy of both deterrence and ambiguity, which is how they dealt with their, their neighbors and their enemies. But many different Israeli politicians have now been speaking of victory. The idea that you must impose your will upon the enemy until they no longer have the will to fight. The older generation thinks it might still be possible to broker peace with their neighbors. The younger generation has seen these peace efforts failed that were brought on by the older generation and are demanding their leaders to secure victory and certitude 
vis-a-vis those who threaten their way of life. Now, I myself served in the Israeli army from 2007, uh, 2008, until 2010. I was involved in the first operation in Gaza post-disengagement in the 2008-2009 Operation Castellet. 34 days of seeing Israelis running to bomb shelters. If I was born in 1999 or 2000, I was a 9 or a 10-year-old kid, I would find myself having lived for an entire month in a bomb shelter rather than being able to see the sunlight outside. And if I was then a 2008 or 2009 veteran of that conflict as a child, and I found myself in 2014 in a similar situation where over two-thirds of Israel was prone to Hamas rocket fire, I would also see myself living in a bomb shelter for some 54 days of war. This is what the younger electorate is demanding, that there is no more rocket fire, that there is no more preponderance to negotiate. And there's a whole line of items that this government, which is actually a little bit absurd when we think about this analysis, they have been trying to placate their enemies rather than give a decisive victory and bringing them to hilt. Now, I think, in my own opinion, that the issues that this election is focused on are the two central issues that have been the focus of every Israeli election. One, security, and two, the economy. And when people go into that ballot box, no matter what Netanyahu has said about Gantz or no matter what Gantz has said about Netanyahu, they will look at the leader who they believe will provide them the most amount of security through negotiations like Gantz is asking for or for unilateral disengagement or to withdraw from Israeli-controlled territories which provided security or they will try to go with Netanyahu and his allies and the status quo which provide a modicum of support knowing that they will not bend over backwards for world leaders. If we remember, Netanyahu was able to stand up to President Obama in the wake of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. And we also see that he was able to stop any peace process which was taking place, which would have threatened Israel's security interests. But we'll see exactly the way in which the next prime minister will be elected only after we see the results when the ballot boxes close on April 9th. Next, Winfield Myers from Campus Watch. Fascism was a danger to American interests in the early 20th century. Communism in the last half of that century. And in the 21st century, we find our new ideological enemy, Islamism. Islamist Watch argues that violence is not the only or even the best way to apply Islamist ideas in Western liberal democracies. Islamist Watch monitors and exposes the growing influence of non-violent radical Islamist groups in the West while empowering moderate Muslims. Radical Islam is the problem. Mainstream Islam is the solution. Read more at www.islamist-watchwatch.org or check us out on Twitter at Islamist Watch. Introducing the YMCA. What, you already know the why? Or so you think. Sure, you know the why for a swim, a workout, even a game of hoops. But did you know we're more than that? We're a cause. When you take your jump shot at the why, someone else is getting job training. Take a cardio class. 
while kids are in an after-school enrichment program. Practice your downward-facing dog as a teen practices her leadership skills. That's the why. We work with people no matter their age, income, or background and give them the opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive, all with one simple goal in mind, to strengthen our community. And we've got so much more that does just that. So while you might think of the why as that place for lifting weights, we're also about lifting entire communities. Introducing the why. We're so much more than a place. We're a cause. Visit ymca.net slash more. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk Radio. We're now joined by the director of Campus Watch, a project of the Middle East Forum, Mr. Winfield Myers, reporting live from Rome, Georgia. Winfield, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Greg. It's good to be with you. So, Winfield, we have had a uh, a chance right now to take a mid-semester look at what's going on in America's Middle East and Islamic Studies programs. And I got to tell you, after reading some of the articles you guys have been putting out for the past few months, the news does not look good. Uh, I wanted to start off by first asking you, what do you think in the spring 2019 semester in American colleges and universities, specifically coming from Middle East and Islamic studies professors, what is the main issue they're talking about? Probably overall Islamophobia. Um, it's, a, it's a coined term, as we all know, that is that exists not to forward debate or advance debate, but in order to end debate. It's an epithet, a curse in a way, if you will. Uh, kind of like calling someone a racist or uh, whatever else you want to uh, in order and not to engage them in conversation, but to shut them up. So that's one thing we're seeing a great deal of. Another, of course, there's always the drumbeat of anti-Israel sentiment, uh, anti-American, anti-Western sentiment. This is, these are all constants. We see them year in and year out because the people who staff these Middle East Studies uh, programs across the country are almost uniformly in agreement on all of the subjects that I just uh, mentioned. So there's very little intellectual diversity in Middle East studies, as we know. So I see, you know, speaking about Islamophobia, or, or let's put that in uh, quotation marks, Islamophobia, yeah. something which I understand if there's anti-Muslim sentiment, but to make it into an academic term, to create a phobia that exists out of it. We have a university on the West Coast at the University of California, Berkeley, and its Center for Race and Gender Studies, a professor who's been able to almost monetize this uh, uh, fear or, or this, this, this uh, academic effort, this juggernaut which has been created, kind of trying to create an entire uh, uh, work of, of study focusing on this Islamophobia. Can you tell us a little bit more about Hatam Bazian's 10th Islamophobia conference? Sure, yes. Bazian, Hatem Bazian, is one of the leading anti-Semitic, I think it's very fair to call him that, um, anti-American academics in the U.S. He, his, his body of work as an academic isn't all that terribly impressive, but he talks constantly, he tweets constantly. Uh, not too long ago, he tweeted out an anti-Semitic cartoon, a rank anti-Semitic cartoon. Anyone with any sense would know what it was. And he claimed later not to have understood what he was doing, which is preposterous. He simply got caught. But uh, Bosnian has been at the forefront of, you say, as you say, monetizing the term Islamophobia, um, the, the idea that uh, to be concerned about Islamism is to have a, a, an almost uh, psychologically 
uh, unbalanced fear of Islam, which is preposterous. As I say, it's, it's meant to shut down debate. And coming up later this month, he's going to hold the 10th Annual International Islamophobia Conference. And it's, the, the title of it is Virtual Internment, Islamophobia, Social Technologies of Surveillance, and Unequal Citizenship. And they're flying in people from all over the world, from the U.K., Turkey, Singapore, uh, Switzerland, all over the United States, Canada. An enormous undertaking is going to go on all week long in the evenings and then be held for three straight days, Friday through Sunday, with all-day panels. And these, this is a, it must cost, obviously, hundreds of thousands of dollars to put this on. Uh, we've covered these at Campus Watch in the past. This strikes me as being a little larger than uh, some of them that have taken place over the past few years. But it's going to be a, uh, an opportunity for them to continue what he has already begun and what Berkeley is supporting with taxpayer dollars, which is the legitimization of this notion of Islamophobia, uh, so that what they're after is <clears throat> to create an atmosphere in which any valid criticism of Islamism, uh, of radical Muslims anywhere, is going to be termed Islamophobia and will be termed hate speech and placed out of bounds, off limits. So it's, it's an effort to shut down the opposition and to really make America safe for, for Islamism, is the way I see it. And it's, it's got all of the academic terms and academic pres <clears throat> prestige of various universities behind it. Um, as you know, the jargon that comes out of academe these days is now and has been for a long time impenetrable. And part of the reason for that is because, in the first place, it substitutes for clear thought, for rigorous reasoning, but also because it gives it a veneer of sophistication that people think, oh, my goodness, they're using these big words. This must be um, pretty important stuff, and I better take it seriously, even if it's over my head. So it's, it's a very dangerous undertaking, and it's gone on for years, and it just seems to me to be getting stronger. I'm reminded of the Orwellian term, thought crime. This yeah. idea that someone's thoughts can be dangerous, and in turn, there must be an effort, and in, in this case, Crime Stop, or, or, or this effort to eliminate Crime Think, if we go back to his prescient novel in 1949-1984, of the way in which these academics are treating legitimate criticism of the way in which Islam is perverted by Islamists. God forbid that you criticize the ideological underpinnings or, or I'd say this, the obtuse ideological underpinnings of anyone who's motivated to have a, a, an act of violence against someone else. Like, for instance, we have Muslim-on-Muslim -Muslim violence, which takes place in the Middle East, or the backgrounds of any terror organization which has perpetrated attacks against the West, like Al-Qaeda, Islamic Jihad, Hamas, Hezbollah, ISIS. If we start to question their ideology, we're all of a sudden an Islamophobe? Yeah, that's what they're going to claim. And in fact, speaking of Orwell, listen to the names of a couple of the panels that are coming up. Big Brother, Muslim Existential Threat, Fear of Surveillance. So they're using Big Brother there. They wanted Big Brother's Little Sisters, the female gaze in the national security panopticon. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, but they're, what they're doing. They're, they're using the Orwellian terms in precisely the way Orwell predicted they would be used. It's just astounding that they're this open with it. But uh, it works. It works in academia. And as you say, it shuts down debate. So they're, they're straight out of uh, Orwell, straight to Berkeley, California, not for the first time, not for the last, but uh, an effort to use uh, to stigmatize critics um, by calling the critics of 
this effort to shut down debate, Big Brother. <laughs> now, now, the, the other thing is, is we don't just have academics from Berkeley who are presenting at this. We have so-called scholars from all over the world who are showing up to this confab. Yeah, from Turkey, from Switzerland, from the UK, uh, just at, uh, all over the uh, all over the uh, Europe, uh, Singapore. So as I say, the, the cost to put this on is uh, just fantastic. I mean, just, just to fly these people in and feed and water them for a few days, uh, it's, it's going to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. So I mean, we have these guys coming into Berkeley. They're getting to this epicenter of this is uh, what I would call the industry of this so-called Islamophobia. And then these papers that they present are then turned into policy recommendations that are given to local, state, national, and even global leaders that are trying to figure out how to combat the violent ideology and then oftentimes the nonviolent ideology that Islamism poses as a threat to not just the West but also to the Middle East. So you're telling me that they're using the American university or the global university, if we will, or wherever they teach, wherever they have tenure as a pulpit for trying to bring about policies, which actually might be anathematic to the way that we have to fight this threat. Yeah, of course. They're, they're trying to uh, harm in every way possible the effort to counter Islamism worldwide. And they're doing it by giving it a veneer of academic and intellectual respectability, of moral certitude, uh, as if they're the good guys in the White Hats and any of us who are opposing this are necessarily draconian, and we're the Orwellian types coming in to do this. So it's an effort to reverse the tables on us and, and to try to shut us down while it makes uh, the world free for them to do anything they want to, unopposed, no intellectual opposition whatsoever. So it's, it's not just being able to have the pulpit at a university to, to peddle their message, but when other forces, and I want to turn really quickly to Columbia University, where we see that Columbia's provost canceled an event citing academic standards. So we, we have this you know, uh, mush which is coming out of Berkeley, but then we go to the East Coast and we have someone citing the rigor of Columbia's very high academic standards and trying to cancel an event which had a member of the Council on Foreign Relations on it, a respected think tank, the executive director of the Institute for Turkish Studies at Georgetown University. And I see here a name, Dr. Alp E. Aslandogan the president of the Alliance for Shared Values, which actually finds itself as a moderate organization, a moderate Muslim organization in the United States that has a certain uh, affinity towards the Gulen movement, which is Turkey's main opposition group outside of its borders. Do you think that Erdogan had any case in pressuring Columbia University to cancel this event? He had no case whatsoever. And uh, the great irony in this is that the title of the... Uh event was to be global freedom of expression. <laughs> and so you have a global freedom of expression shut down by a weak-kneed, spineless provost of one of America's great universities, um, surely under pressure, as uh, Stephen Cook, the uh, Council on Foreign Relations scholar you were speaking of, uh, says, under pressure from the government of Turkey. And it's just the most uh, embarrassing thing. Is it's just disgusting for uh, a foreign authoritarian to be able to stop a panel from occurring at an American university is repugnant, is morally repugnant, is intellectually dishonest, and it, um, it should never be allowed to happen. But you know, if you've been watching Columbia over the years, you can't be shocked. I see uh, the commentary, at least as it's been received online, is best summed up by the reply to this tweet, which says, 
One can easily understand how Turkey's authoritarian leadership interferes in an event in the U.S. where the freedom of speech is indisputable. Huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, indisputable freedom of speech as long as you toe the line to foreign dictators. Then you're in good shape. And, and Winfield, I also understand a few weeks ago that Columbia University, which has always been the, the, the intellectual morass, or, or I don't want to go so far as to call it a cesspool of, uh, of odd thoughts. I mean, we have... Uh, you know, uh, some other professors there who have been peddling their uh, mush for the past uh, few years or few decades. Oh, sure. yeah. But there was a case of Holocaust appropriation to justify Palestinian uh, terrorism against Israel? Yes, there was. There was. Uh, just uh, last month, um, <clears throat> we sent a reporter there who reported on this. You can read about it at, uh, at Campus Watch. Uh, Columbia unmoored academics appropriate the Holocaust to bash Israel is the title of her article. And they, um, it was, a, it was a, about a book called The Holocaust and the Nakba, of course the Arabic word for catastrophe, meaning 1948 founding of Israel, a new grammar of trauma and history. And they very openly um, appropriated the Holocaust and compared it to the Nakba in an effort to delegitimize Israel as a Jewish state, which is the purpose, I would argue, for the existence of Columbia's um, Center for Palestine Studies. It doesn't exist. It's so many. It's the case of so many different um, advocacy um, efforts posing as academic subjects. It doesn't exist for rigorous pursuit of the truth. It exists to peddle a particular line, uh, regardless of the lack of truth behind it. In this case, that <clears throat> the Palestinians are the legitimate and only legitimate uh, peoples of the area that is Israel. Therefore, all of Israel is occupied territory, not the West Banks, if that's a, people want to call them that, but all of Israel. And so it, it, they use this to, to write fake history, to put out uh, all sorts of, of absolutely uh, absurd revisionist accounts of Israel's founding, of the uh, presence of uh, the ancient Hebrew people in Israel, and so on, too, again, with the goal of delegitimizing Israel as a Jewish state and making it palatable uh, to see a rise in anti-Semitism, which we certainly see all over the world, and to make it palatable to think of a world without Israel. And, and, I, and I would unhesitatingly state that's their goal. That's the project they're after at Columbia, not unlike the one they're doing at, at, at Berkeley uh, by legitimizing the ideology behind that. So it's, a, it's insidious. So Winfield, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to catch you off guard for a second. We've got about two and a half minutes left on the program. We started off the first 40 minutes talking about Israel's upcoming Knesset elections uh, scheduled for April 9th next week to see who the new prime minister and the coalition government will be in Jerusalem. Why do you think Americans should care about who Israel votes for? Well, Israel is our closest ally in the Middle East, obviously. It's our uh, far and away most reliable ally in that very volatile area. And um, Americans should want Israel to remain stable, to remain powerful, to be able to defend itself, uh, and to prosper economically. And obviously the leadership of that country, like any other, is going to have a, a powerful influence on the trajectory that its future takes. And so they should want a prime minister of Israel, as they should want a prime minister of all allied, uh, prime minister of all allied countries, who is um, 
uh, capable of working with America, capable of working with the West, and stands up for uh, Israelis, uh, Israel's independence in the region, for their safety, for their continued existence. I mean, more than any other country in the world, it faces a daily existential threat from its neighbors. And if you don't have a prime minister who is in a position to understand that, act on it, not become weak-kneed, as Columbia's provost has done, or knuckle, <laughs> under, to, uh, knuckle under to the region's uh, autocrats. I wonder how they would um, fare in a Knesset election. They might get 20% of the vote. Yeah, <laughs> they would. I bet he would. <laughs> All right, Winfield Myers from Campus Watch. Thanks for joining us. And thank just you, yeah, pro- Thank you. And just a reminder, everyone, April 9th, Tuesday, we'll be having a special YouTube section, which will be coming out with a live commentary on Israel's elections. You can find that at youtube.com slash meforum or on our website, meforum.org. Thank you again to Delaney Janchik, our communications assistant, Lisa Barbunas, our director of communications, and to all of you, the listeners here on Middle East Forum Century Radio. I'm Greg Roman here on WWDB 860 AM signing off. See you next week.